Welcome to Songcraft, conversations with great songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. Songcraft brings you in-depth interviews with the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know their names, and you definitely know their songs. We bring you their stories. You can hear all our episodes, check out our bonus content, sign up for our email list, and contact us directly at songcraftshow.com. Also, please take a moment to like us at facebook.com slash songcraftshow and follow us on Twitter at songcraftshow. You're listening to George Strait's 2001 recording of Good Time Charlie's, a song that was originally a number one hit for Del Reeves in 1968 and was written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, the legendary Jerry Chestnut. Chestnut has written more than three dozen top 40 singles, including top 10 classics such as Jerry Lee Lewis's Another Place, Another Time, Porter Wagner and Dolly Parton's Holding On to Nothing, George Jones's A Good Year for the Roses, Farron Young's It's Four in the Morning, Loretta Lynn's They Don't Make Them Like My Daddy Anymore, and Johnny Cash's Oni. Additionally, he wrote five songs that were recorded by Elvis Presley, including the top ten It's Midnight and T-R-O-U-B-L-E, which would later become a hit single for Travis Tritt. Chestnut also penned charting singles for Tammy Wynette, Dave Dudley, Bobby Goldsboro, Bill Anderson, Hank Williams Jr., Mel Tillis, Tom Jones, and Alan Jackson. His songs have additionally been recorded by Waylon Jennings, Kitty Wells, Ernest Tubb, Eddie Arnold, Ray Price, Marty Robbins, Conway Twitty, Hank Thompson, Willie Nelson, Mark Chestnut, Johnny Paycheck, George Strait, Elvis Costello, The Counting Crows, and many others. The two-time Grammy nominee was named Billboard's Country Songwriter of the Year in 1972, was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1996, and became a member of the Kentucky Music Hall of Fame in 2004. Well, we have an action-packed episode of Songcraft today. Definitely. We've got Elvis stories, we've got moonshining, we've got alligator shooting. <laughs> All true, as right. a matter of fact. Uh, just just the standard fare. Right, just typical uh, day in the life. Yeah, Jerry uh, Chestnut is um, definitely like a character and a great yeah. storyteller. Yeah, and so much so that we, we probably really don't have as much time to sit here and chat uh, like we normally do at the beginning. Um, I'm not sure there's a lot that we can add in terms of entertainment value. I kind of think we're only going to take away from the magic that is Jerry Chestnut. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's let's not waste everybody's time. Let's just hop right in here and uh, and get to our conversation with Jerry. Let's do it. Jerry, welcome to Songcraft. It's good to be with you. Now, I understand that you grew up in Harlan County, Kentucky, around the coal camps there. Um, tell us how you first got into making music when you were a kid. My brother got a Sears Roebuck guitar, cost $4 for Christmas, <laughs> and I was two or three years younger than him, Okay. and my dad showed it to me at Christmas time, and the first thing he did was lay the law down to me. I was not to touch it under no condition. Wow. <laughs> well, I made up my mind right then I was going to be a guitar player. <laughs> And when my mother would take a nap in the evening and my brother was in school, and I guess I was about five years old or something, I'd sneak in there and get it and, and fiddle with it. Mm, right. And uh, later on, my dad found out about that and uh, showed me two or three chords on it, and my brother wasn't actually that interested in it. So I started playing guitar just around. And then I, they had an animal care contest at the, the high school there. And 
I entered that with that guitar, and first prize was either a quarter in cash <laughs> or a free haircut at Dan Hill's Barbershop. <laughs> and my mother had been cutting my hair, so I wasn't worried about that, so I took the quarter. <laughs> Wise choice. That's where I became a professional musician. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. Well, when did you first get the idea that maybe you could start writing songs of your own? I joined the Air Force uh, to get out of Harlem. Right. Alive. <laughs> and uh, rather than going to coal mines, I never did work in the coal mines, but mm. I've hauled coal and loaded it over in these coal guns, these railroad guns with 50 cents a load. Right. And I knew there wasn't no future in that, and I didn't want to go underground and get black lung and die at 40. So right. I tried to figure a way out of Harlem. And there was six of us boys joined the Air Force at once for three years. It takes two days to find out you've made a mistake, but it's too late. <laughs> but uh, I had been picking guitar and playing around local, you know, with, with friends. Not, never a show or nothing. Right. And when I joined the Air Force, I, we, I continued to do that. And I uh, every base or every Air Force base that I was on, including the Far East during the Korean War and everything, I had a band. Mm. And uh, I remember, uh, I think it was on Guam, I had a Western swing band, and we didn't have no fiddles. So I had twin steel guitar players. Wow, interesting. And uh, Hank Thompson had a song I called Wild Side of Life. It was so right. big. And we had to play that thing seven times a night. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, what if I'd write a song? Hmm. And Hank Thompson would cut it and they'd play it on the radio. Yeah. How could I afford that? wonder what that would cost. Uh -huh. I never dreamed they'd pay me. <laughs> right. Um, so tell us how you kind of went from that first seed of an idea that maybe you could come up with a song of your own to getting into creating original material after your time in the service. So I moved to Florida. Hmm. And when I got to Florida, I looked up the local band and started playing with them and broadcasting on CBS, WFOY in St. Augustine. Okay. Wow. And, uh, then I started, uh, making moonshine. <laughs> they used to shoot alligators and pay me 50 cents each to get them before they got into the deep channels. Jeez. Wow. I did everything in the world to make a dollar and just to make a living. And then I got to work at the railroad and became a conductor and got the seniority on about 199 men. And uh, now, I, to this point, I've never written a song. Hmm. I decided one day to try to write a song. And I thought, I love Filipino Baby by Cowboy Copas. Right. So I thought, I'm going to write a song called The Filipino Waltz about this guy that he's, he's wanting to go back to the Philippines because he loved this girl over mm. there. Yeah, yeah. So I wrote, I'm coming back to you. And then I figured, now something's got to rhyme with that. So I put hair of gold and eyes of blue. Right. <laughs> And one of these guys in the band, I was telling him I was writing this song, and I give him two or three lines, and they said, they ain't no blonde-headed, blue-eyed Filipino. <laughs> so that kind of killed my song right. So I quit that. 
<laughs> but later on, I decided I could railroad in Nashville. Mm. I could make moonshine in Nashville if I had the right place. I, I could, uh, I could probably get on a radio show. I thought I'm not doing anything down here that I couldn't do in Nashville and maybe become a try to become a star, wow. you know, like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But when I got to Nashville, they told me they, they, the last thing they needed was a star. They said, we've got plenty of stars. What we need is somebody to write some hits for these stars we got. Yeah. Yeah. So I started trying to write songs again. And I believe this was about 1958 when you went to Nashville. Were you able to find success as a writer fairly quickly? I got a distributorship with a bunch of small appliances, vacuum cleaners, floor polishers, wax applicators, just any small appliance I could get a franchise with. Right. And for 10 years, 10 years, I, I worked three states and was very successful wow. with it and then played with music on the side and wrote songs. Yeah, yeah. And then 10 years later, I got one cut. Right, and that would have been the big Del Reeves song, A Dime at a Time, which was a top 10 country hit in Dell end up cutting your song? Norrell Wilson was a friend of mine. He's kind of working with me. Okay. And he was on the Ralph Emery show one evening, and he liked another song called Another Place, Another Time. And uh, he did it on the Ralph Emery show. And uh, Dale was also on the show that evening. Okay. And uh, when the show was over, he said, what was that song you did? And... Uh, Norrell told him, said, that, this friend of mine, he's trying to get started as a songwriter. He said, he's a good writer. And and Dale said, the next time I record, I want to hear that. Wow. So then I was sitting in Norrell's office one time, and uh, the phone rang. We're sitting there talking. And it was Dale. And he said that him and Bob Montgomery was over at United Artists, and uh, they'd been listening to songs for two days, and they hadn't heard nothing. Hmm. And Dale was coming off of a song called The Private. Right. I think it went in the charts at 90 with an anchor. <laughs> anyway, he had had a couple of big hits, but he, he hadn't lately, and he was pretty cold. Right, right. So he wanted to hear this song, so he called Noro, and Noro told him, said, the guy that wrote it's right here, said he can bring it over, our copy of it. And so Dale said, do that. Hmm. So I went over to UA, and him and Bob was sitting in there. And... Uh, I told him, I said, play that third song on there, which was a dime at a time. I said, it sounds like you. Sounds like something you'd do. Mm. They started listening to it, and they kept, you know, when you're listening to a song by a new writer, you think it's going to be pretty good for a while, and then it's going to fall apart. So right. They kept waiting on it to cave in, <laughs> and it never did. It just wow. kept getting stronger. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But when they got done, they smiled and, uh, at each other. Then they went on and played another place another time, and Bob couldn't believe these two songs. And he, he looked at me and he said, who published these songs? And I said, nobody. And he said, well, who paid for the the musicians and, uh, and everything? And uh, I said, I did. And he said, then you own the publishing on them? I said, yeah, I reckon. <laughs> and he said, 
why don't we start a publishing company, you and I and Dale, (laughs) and uh, you write the songs and and, uh, we'll get them cut. Yeah. He said, in fact, we'll cut them two songs tonight. Wow. Wow. And Dale put that thing out, put out a dime at a time, and it was in the Billboard chart for five and a half months. Wow. So people started coming to me then. I don't know if I had a hit for them, because back then, people looked for hit songs. Well, Del Reeves released three of your songs as singles in 1968, including the number one hits, Good Time Charlie's, and Looking at the World Through a Windshield. Whoa, I'm looking at the world through a windshield And I see everything in a little bit different light I got a sweet little thing I'm wanting to see in Nashville. And I'm down around Dallas and roll on south tonight. That was a period when truck driving songs were particularly popular in country music. Um, did you tend to approach the writing process with a particular goal in mind, like thinking to yourself, okay, today I want to write a, a truck driving song? Or did you typically just kind of go with wherever inspiration struck and then figure out where to pitch the songs after the fact? I would take a guitar and get kind of a feel going and start hearing words in it and just start writing a song that I thought would be commercial. I just sat and listened to country radio at at what was kind of happening, and I kind of got in that bag of what was happening. And I don't know, just just, everybody would come to my office. Waylon would come, George Jones would come, Tammy would come. Everybody just come to my office. I never did pitch songs. And I think I know why they were coming to see you, because it was not just Del Reeves who was having success with your songs in the late 60s. Um, in 1968 alone, 10 of your songs hit the Billboard country chart, including uh, Another Place, Another Time, which you mentioned earlier. And that was the, the song that had initially brought you to Del Reeves' attention, but the hit version was by Jerry Lee Lewis, who hit the top five with it and revived his career at that time by launching a, a hot streak of successful country singles that actually far outnumbered the, the rock hits that he's best remembered for today. Chairs are stacked all over tables And it's closing time, they say I could wait right here forever if they'd only let me stay Anywhere Would be much better Than that old lonely room of mine And a sleepless night Awaiting for another place Another time Tell us about that song. I, I just figured an idea of a man that was living in this apartment I thought if he lived up there in that apartment, now he's out in this bar and he's drinking, he's dancing and putting music and his money in this jukebox and dancing with this girl, and he's wanting to take her to that apartment, mm. and she maybe even want to go, but uh, she can't go tonight. Huh. So I put that in there that uh, she whispered to him an- uh, another place, another time. And then wow. when Noro told me to, he loved that line. Said nobody's ever said that in a song. He said, "Put that in there some more if mm-hmm. you can." And so I just titled it that and just wrapped the whole song around it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, changed the title to that rather than another lonely night. And uh, Eddie Kilroy was at UA doing some promo work. 
Yeah. And then when he moved over to Mercury, they brought Jerry Lee Lewis in, and Jerry Lee was banned from all radio and, and, and all over the world. There was nobody would book him. There was nobody would uh, play his records or nothing because he had married his 13-year-old cousin. Right, yeah, and, that'll do uh, it. And so they they told Eddie, said, if Eddie said, I think we can cut him country and cut hits. And they said, well, if you can find a hit for him, we'll try it. on." So they said, they set up the session on Saturday morning. That way, back then, the union would let you set up a session on on a weekend. And if you didn't find a hit song for the artist or wanted to, you could cancel the session even huh. after the musician showed up wow. and, and didn't have to pay them. Wow. So uh, on Friday night, I walked in my house out on the lake, and the phone was ringing, and it was Kilroy. And he said he wanted me to teach another place another time to Jerry Lee Lewis and said, I think we'll cut you ahead. And I hmm. said, Jerry Lee Lewis? Wow. <laughs> yeah, he said he, he wants to go country. And I said, do you think country will go him? And he said, yeah, I believe it will. Yeah. With that song. Yeah. He said, well, you would teach it to him? And I said, yeah. I thought he was going to say Thursday or Friday or something like that. And I said, when do you want to do this? And he said, right now. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. So I got back in my car and drove back down to Mercury Records, and we spent the night drinking beer and, and singing that song. Right. Wow. And him playing on the piano, and we went, went in on 10 o'clock on uh, Saturday morning. And uh, he jumped on it and took one take, man, and just wore it out. You know, he'd yeah. been playing it all night. Yeah, yeah. And all them musicians just jumped in and followed him on that piano, and he did that one thing and, and said, what are we going to put on the back of this thing? And they they asked him, said, you know, release me? And he said, no, I never heard it. Hmm. And they, they started naming all these standards. He'd never heard none of them. They said, do you know anything, any country song? And he said, well, I know walking the floor over you, the tune of it, but I don't know the words. I said, I do. So I wrote down the words while they was running down the, mel the, the melody. Yeah. And, then, and that, so they put that on the back. Yeah. And I mean, from the time that thing hit the DJs and, and they heard it, they started playing it, wearing it out. Well, yeah, and radio was wearing out a lot of your songs uh, at that time. I mean, that same year, Porter Wagoner and Dolly Parton had a top 10 hit with your song, Holding On to Nothing. Oh, why do we keep holding on with nothing left to hold on to? Let's be honest with each other. That's the least that we can do. I feel guilty when the envy me and you. We're holding on with nothing left to hold on to. Was that a song that you knew would be a duet when you were writing it? Billy Ed Wheeler wrote a song called Maggie, I Wish to God We'd Never Met. <laughs> and it never done nothing. Right. But the song had knocked me out. And I thought, you know, everybody that heard that song thought to themselves, that guy is sick of Maggie. <laughs> and and from that day on, I, in 400 songs, I never put a woman's name in the song. Wow. I learned a lesson. Yeah. But I, I was sitting there at about 4 o'clock in the morning just thinking along these lines. Why wasn't that a hit? Yeah. And then I thought, I believe that's the reason he put a woman's name in there. Wow. Right. So to myself, I just said, 
criticizing this song, and Billy Ed's a great writer. How would you have written it if you was going to write a, a song about Maggie like that? Mm. And I said, I'd have just said, uh, we're holding, trying to hold this thing together, but there's really nothing left to, to hold on to. I mean, it's it's over. Yeah. And and so when I simplified it like that and made it we, it just flowed. And I wrote that thing in no time. Wow, that's great. And then I took it and... Uh, Porter and Dolly was cutting, and Porter got to where he'd come to my session to try to get uh, the first uh, choice at the songs. And anyway, <laughs> he had told me to bring him a hit record over there, and I took that over there. He pulled this Wallen sack. You remember him, little mm-hmm. Wallen sack recorder? Yeah, he right. pulled it out of a drawer, and I said, everybody else had big speakers in their office and everything. I said, is that all you got to play this on? He said, son... If it sounds halfway decent on this, we know it's a monster. <laughs> right. <That's laughs> so he put it on. Dolly was sitting there. When he got to the course, she started singing harmony to it or humming it. And he said, boy, that's got great harmonies on it. And she said, it sure does. And he said, we need to cut a duet on this. Wow. In the meantime, she had been trying to get on RCA as a single artist, and Chet wouldn't sign her because Chet... A great friend of mine, he just had an opinion, her coming from where he did up in East Tennessee, and he just didn't think she was a hit artist. Right. And she could play a record. So when that thing came out, I think a lot of women probably bought it and played it when their husband was at work. <laughs> but, but anyway, it started selling records like crazy. Mm, yeah. And so Chet told me, he said, I knew right away what Porter usually sold. Right. And this thing's selling twice as many, so a lot of these sales are not Porter Wagner right, or right. Dolly Parton. Yeah. So he signed her. And that song, they were the duo, duo of the year on the strength of that song. And right. he signed Dolly to the label mm. and started putting out records on her and the rest of it's history. Wow. Well, in 1969, George Jones had a top 10 hit with your song, If Not For You. But the following year, George had a massive number one hit with one of your most classic compositions, A Good Year for the Roses. It's been a good year for the roses Many blooms still linger there The lawn could stand another mowing Funny, I don't even care When you turn the The door behind you closes The only thing I know to say It's been a good year for the roses Tell us about writing that one. Otherwise, I bought a lot and had a house built on it. And when they showed me all the paperwork on this thing that this contractor was doing, he had a $5,000 budget in there for landscaping around the edge of the house. Wow. Well, I told him, I said, that's a lot of money back then. The <laughs> house was only 26000 Jeez. I said, listen, take that out of there. I can put some plants around this house. I grow <laughs> roses. I grow all kinds of plants. Don't just take that out of it. So he did. And after the house was built, going down this walkway, I put about six or eight Jackson Perkins hybrid roses. Hmm. And you have to take care of these things almost like a baby. Right. 
You have to tend them every day and spray them from leaf mold and do all this and put cotton seed hulls around them to keep them from freezing and do all this. But I did this the first year, and uh, they did great. Hmm. And then when springtime came, right. and it'd get big buds on them about the size of a golf ball, and then they'd just fall off. Hmm. So I called the, the nursery where I'd bought them. And all those roses I bought, you did great last year, but this year the buds are all falling off of And the guy said, Jerry, everybody's got this problem. It's been a real wet, rainy spring, and roses don't like a lot of water. Hmm. And he said, to put it in a few words, he said, it just ain't been a good year for roses. Wow. Wow. Well, I moved from that house and sold it and moved to a farm and had a writing room out there. And I was in that writing room one morning for about 4 o'clock. And I was thinking, I wonder if I'd have brought them roses out here if they'd done good. Mm-hmm. Right. And then my mind was just wondering like it does that time of morning. And I thought, what if, what if them roses was doing real great and everything else was going to pot? Right. Yeah. If a man's wife was leaving him and the baby crying and, and all this stuff and these roses just blooming like the devil. Right. And so I thought, boy, that's weird. And so I started writing, writing them like what I was thinking down. Yeah. After I got it written, I demoed it on Christmas Eve. Hmm. And I also did The Wonders You Perform on the same demo. Right. Then about a week later, George Jones called me from the Ramada Inn down on uh, James Robertson Parkway, and he said, bring me a hit down here. I'm fixing to cut, and I ain't, I ain't got a hit song. To... He was married to Tammy at the time. Right. That's 1970, or 71, I believe it was. Anyway, so I went down there and took, and took the guitar and uh, just sang it to him with the guitar. And uh, the minute I finished singing it, he said, that's what I'm looking for. He said, have you written anything else lately? And I said, yeah, but it ain't for you. I don't know who on earth would would, uh, record it. I don't even know why I wrote it. (laughs) And he said, let me hear some of it. So I took the guitar and I sang The Wonders You Perform. It's not country and it's not pop and it's not sacred. I don't know what it is. It's kind of of in the middle. Anyway, I said, I don't know who in the world would ever cut this. But Tammy was in there doing her hair in the bathroom. Hmm, right. And when she heard this, the minute I got done, she walked out and she said, would you do that again? Hmm. And I said, yeah, and I sang it again. And she said, I'll tell you one thing, if Billy Sherrill will let me, the next time I get in front of a microphone, that's the first thing I'll cut. I love that. Wow. Yeah. You understood when some denied you and even when they crucified you, knowing all these things To see a king the night that you were born And I'd ask one favor if I can Help me to better understand The mystery of the wonders you perform Well, that was a number one song. Um, Del Reeves, Looking at the World Through a Windshield, and Good Time Charlie's, as we mentioned, both went to number one, as did George Jones' A Good Year for the Roses. But... 
All of those songs went to number one in Record World magazine, which, like Cashbox at the time, was a competitor of Billboard. Um, but your first number one in, in Billboard, which was the last one of them standing still today, uh, came with Farron Young's It's Four in the Morning, which was released as a single in December of 1971 and went to number one on all three of the major industry charts. It's four in the morning And once more the dawning just woke up the wanting in me Wishing I never met her Knowing if I'd forget her How much better off she would be The longer I hold on And the longer this goes on The harder that it's gonna be But it's for and At the time, it was Farron's first number one single in about 10 years, and his comeback record after a serious car accident partially uh, severed his tongue and made it difficult for him to pronounce S sounds. Um, and he used to tell people from the stage that you wrote that song for him to help him make a comeback. Is that right? That's a story that somebody came up with. It's not true, <laughs> but it's a good story, and so I don't... Uh worry about it it don't make no difference uh, when, I first, when i first came here i had a bad lisp mm. i couldn't say soup i'd say poop right. like t-h-o-u-p in fact uh murray john wilkins and uh and another guy i can't think of his name but anyway they they wanted to manage me because they thought that was commercial like uh, they said it's a, it, it's not near as bad as mel tillis right right <laughs> but uh, I was breaking up, and I said, uh, this is it. I'm not going to put you in this position any longer. I can't do for you what I'd love to do, and so this is it. Hmm. It's over. Yeah. From now on, there will be no more romance. Then I went home. The next morning, I got up and got the guitar and started to write a song, and all of it once it hit me. There's not going to be anything to look forward to. There's not going to be any joy there. And I looked at my watch, and it was 4 o'clock. And I said, it's 4 in the morning, and once more, a uh, new day is dawning. And it's just woke up to the longing in me. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to break this thing off, but I just don't think I can. Mm, yeah. So I, I got the thing to rolling. And I wrote the first verse and the chorus, and then all of a sudden, I just went blank. There wasn't nothing coming. And now, when that happens, Felice Brown had told me, he said, don't just write something that rhymes to finish the song. She said, just put it away and pick it back up later. Yeah. So I decided to do that, and I went and got on a tractor and started dragging rocks. Had this little boy picking up the rocks. Yeah. And... Uh, thinking about that song and I started kind of humming it hmm. and that tractor kind of like a rhythm and then I came up with that last verse which was you know I saw more love in her eyes when I left her than most foolish men will ever see right and I, it's the best verse in the song yeah. and it made the song just keep getting stronger yeah and I kept singing that over and over and I thought I'll never get it written down 
but I can't remember that much. And so I just pulled the pin on that tractor and took off down this old country road down toward the house. And the boy was hollering, where are you going? Where are you going? <laughs> I just waved at him and kept playing. <laughs> I, I got to the house and I walked in. I run in the house, run through the kitchen, and everybody said, where are you going? And I just waved at them and kept singing and went in that room, and I got it wrote down. Uh-huh. <laughs> Before it gets away. Then I went to the office that day, and I never even demoed the song or nothing. And about 10 o'clock, Brian Young called me. Hmm. He said, bring me a hit song over here. Well, I had demoed a song. I don't remember what the name of it was, but anyway, Dave Dudley had it out. Hmm. But anyway, I took I took it over there. Right. And... Uh, I played it for Farron, and he said, no, that ain't what I'm looking for. And it just sounded like him, you know, mm. what he had been doing. Right. He said, have you written anything else lately? And I said, yeah, but it ain't for you. And he said, what the hell are you in there for me? <laughs> you know? And I said, well, it's a waltz. And I know that I, that you artists hate waltzes. Right. He said, uh, sing it to me. Well, I sang him four in the morning. Right. And when I got done, he said, I'll get it out of that waltz town. I'll do, I'll do it 4-4. Four, four. Hmm, right. And so he said, uh, we'll cut it Friday. If you... And I said, oh, I'll, I'll be here. I want to hear it. Yeah. So I came over Friday, and he tried 4-4 four, four time. He tried bluegrass. He tried everything in God's creation. Hmm. And a waltz is a waltz, like a rose <laughs> is a rose. You yeah. can't get it out. Right, a waltz right. Time. And uh, so, uh, in the in the session after he did it ten different times that way, he said, "Hell, let's just do it the way it is." <laughs> we tried. But he said, "I want to change the title of it to the warning in me." Right. I said, "Farron." Call it under the double eagle if you want to. Just <laughs> cut it. Kennedy said, Fern, you've cut a hit song. Play golf. Have a drink. Do whatever you want to. Leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. Well, the second half of 1972 brought you three more number one singles. Don't She Look Good, recorded by Bill Anderson. Uh, Pride's Not Hard to Swallow, recorded by Hank Williams Jr. And Oni, Recorded by Johnny Cash. I've been working, building muscles. Oni's just been standing round to get the salt. And today, about 4.30, I'll make up for every good night's sleep I've lost. When I'm gone, I'll be remembered as a working man that put his point across. With a right hand full of knuckles Cause today I show old Oni who's the boss Now that's kind of unique in that it's a lighthearted and funny revenge song But it's just a series of verses and there's not really a, a bridge or a chorus So it's kind of an unusual uh, song structure um, Tell us how you came up with that one When I was railroading, before I became a conductor I was in the car department repairing cars Right and I was doing overhead stainless steel welding and stuff, and that stuff, old hot stuff going down my neck, and we was under a glass roof, and, and in Florida, it was hail. 
and we had a foreman named Frank Oney that would just stand over you with his hands clasped behind him and watch you. Right. Just watch you like a hawk, like you. <laughs> and uh, and if you had to go to the restroom, which was an outside building, he would time you. Wow. And if you checked in at the if you punched in five minutes late, he'd raise hell with you. So anyway, Larry Butler called me one day, and he said, Jerry, I've got a chance to produce Johnny Cash. Columbia said if I could find a hit for him, that's when Johnny was doing all that religious stuff. His fans don't didn't buy that. Right. They, uh, they're rebels. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, and and they told Larry Butler if he could find him a hit, uh, they'd let him produce it. So Larry called me and said, "Can can you can you write a hit for Cash? What 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 could we come up with?" Yeah. Hmm. And I said, "They want to hear him knock somebody's brains half out, for, <laughs> and or or get they like they like him about railroads and prisons and stuff like that." <laughs> yeah, and that's the kind of fans he's got. He yeah. don't have a lot of Christian fans, I don't think, <laughs> and I think that's his problem. <laughs> I said, for example, I said when I was working at the railroad, if I didn't have to have the job, I had a foreman down there that I'd have knocked his brains out. <laughs> and now, when I came home in the evening, if I could have listened to Johnny sing a song about beating somebody's brains out, some boss, I'd have probably bought that record. And I said, that's the kind of thing he needs to to be doing. Yeah. Right. And Larry said, why don't you just write that? <laughs> well, I got up the next morning, and I got to thinking, if I'd have lived long enough to retire and got that little gold watch and all that stuff, hmm. then I wouldn't have had to have that job. And, and after I, they had this ceremony, this little retirement ceremony and so forth, I would have probably hair-lipped him. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote this song about that and with a right hand full of knuckles today I'll show old Oney who's the boss and man he went in and just cut that thing in number one record bingo right. Right. and uh, funny thing uh, I'd say five years ago which was a long time after that hit record his daughter called me I don't know how she got my number, but anyway, she called me and told me what a rear end I was for writing that song about her, about Frank Oney, about her daddy. Oh, wow. And I said, let me tell you something. I did that as a commercial song that I thought would sell records for Johnny Cash. I was not really knocking Frank Oney. Mm, right. And I'll tell you something else. If I owned the Florida East Coast Railway Company, and I had to leave this country for some reason for 10 years and couldn't even come back and check out of all the foremen and supervisors on the Florida East Coast, the man I would put in charge would have been your daddy because he was the best superintendent out there. Wow, right. Because I would know he didn't take nothing for granted. He made sure that you was doing everything right, hmm. and he stood over you. He never did go take a break. Right. And he was a great superintendent, and you ought to be proud of him. Mm. I'm proud to have worked for him. Yeah. She accepted that? But she didn't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, she still hate, hated my guts when she died. <laughs>
Oh well. <laughs> but that's 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 only. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the hits that I'd like to talk about, because I'm a huge Elvis fan, uh, is the song It's Midnight, which was a song that you wrote with Billy Ed Wheeler, and it became a top ten for Elvis in 1974. Tell us how you guys wrote that one and how the opportunity came about for Elvis to record it. Well, I was playing golf. Billy Ed Wheeler and I were buddies and played golf together and everything. And he said, I want to talk to you. And I said, he said, you are a great writer of love songs. Maybe the best. I am good at writing story songs. I am trying to write a love song, a pop version, let's put it this way, a pop version of Four in the Morning. Hmm. Yeah. And he said, I've got a good melody started, and I've got a few words started. I need a chorus. Hmm. Right. And he said, I need some help on the verse. And he said, would you write that with me? And I said, yeah, sure. And I had never written a song with nobody. Well, huh. And uh, I got my guitar, and I got in the car there with him, and I said, now start singing that song, and he did. And then I'd say, hold it a minute, and then I'd change this line, and I'd change the other and so forth. And by the time we got back to Nashville, we had a perfect verse and a chorus right. of It's Midnight. And that's how that song came to be. And how did that song find its way to Elvis? I had just done a demo session, and that was one of the songs on it. And Lamar Fike, who worked for Elvis, he needed an office, so he rented an office from me across the hall and then decided rather than pay me, he'd pitch songs, which he never did. He got one album cut, I think, by Tanya Tucker. <laughs> but, uh, Elvis was fit to record, and he said, uh, get me a copy of that song, It's Midnight, and let me take it down there to him. I haven't done a lead sheet on that yet, or even the lyrics. And I said, that don't matter, he ain't going to do it anyway. <laughs> I said, let him take it on down there. So he did. That evening, about 5 o'clock, I got a call, and it's Lamar, and he said, of the three songs that I took down there, I've got, I can find the lyric to all of them, but I can't find the lyric to this one. Well, I wasn't about to tell him that. I didn't defend it because I didn't think he always would like it. <laughs> right. I said, I said, well, hell, it's just one verse in a course. I said, why don't you just uh, get a pencil and paper and I'll give it to you over the phone. So, and I gave it to him and then Elvis did it. Wow. And did you ever get a chance to actually meet Elvis? Lamar told me, said, uh, Elvis wants you to go to this. We're going to the movie over at this Memphis Theater and said, uh, he wants you to meet us over there. He wants to meet you. And I said, okay. And so I met him over there, and, and he got out of this, this car. And when we walked in, Lamar told him, you know, this is Jerry Chestnut. And then he told me, Jerry, you know, this is Elvis. <laughs> right. 
and he stuck he stuck out his hand just like a little eighteen year old boy in Harlan, Kentucky, and said, "How you doing?" <laughs> and I don't even remember what I said, <laughs> but when I when I knew I was fixing to meet Elvis, I thought maybe I might just faint or something. It's kind of like meeting Superman if you're a songwriter, you yeah, know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it was nothing like that. It was almost a disappointment because it was just a, a, a little humble, kind, wonderful, like a high school kid. <laughs> yeah, interesting. It was nothing like our picture. I right. had met pa, uh, Tom Jones, George Jones, and I'd met everybody on earth. Yeah. Right. But I thought, now this is going to be altogether different. Right. But it wasn't. Wow. It was the simplest thing in the world was meeting Elvis. But once you met him and once he became a part of your life, it changed your whole life. <laughs> Nobody told me to do this. I never made up my mind to do this. But I stopped writing hit songs. I stopped writing songs that I thought people would buy because they were hits and uh, country songs, even if they could go pop or something. Right. And I started taking, trying to write things like, uh, for example, I didn't write this, but like a bridge over troubled waters, you mm. know, just great songs. Mm. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, I quit trying to write hit songs and started trying to write great songs. Wow. Huh. I wrote, uh, one of the songs that he cut of mine, for example, was It's Midnight, mm. Never Again. Love Coming Down, which is a, my favorite song. Wow. Hmm. And uh, Woman Without Love. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously Elvis had another major hit with one of your songs, T-R-U-B-L-E. Um, that was released as a single that fell just shy of the top 10 on the Billboard country chart, but it was also a, a top 40 pop hit. And that's a really clever chorus with the last word of each line being spelled out but still managing to rhyme well hello t-r-o-u-b-l-e what in the world you doing l-o-n-e say hey good l-o-o-k-i-n-g i spell t-r-o-u-b-l-e tell us about coming up with that song you know little David Wilkins? Sure, yeah. Big old guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> little David weighed 385. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and David was on uh, MCA, or deck of him. He'd look in the billboard chart and see four or five in the top ten of mine, and he said, why don't you write me a hit? And just, right. I mean, that's all I heard from him. Write me a hit. <laughs> right. <laughs> And finally, one morning, I couldn't think of nothing to write about, and I was sitting there about half asleep drinking coffee, and I thought, maybe I ought to write David a hit. What would I write? Well, David had been playing this piano, and uh, and he had this uh, mechanical drummer, and then he had this guitar player that played with him, and, and he could sound like a six-piece band, and he was playing Ireland's Restaurant. Right. And all they had in there was beer, and steak and biscuits. I remember those <laughs> steak and it. biscuits. Those were good steak and yep. biscuits too. <laughs> that was what. It, that was all they had. Yeah. So you you had to like little David and beer and steak and biscuits, <laughs> or you wasn't there. Right. And so we'd all go over there. A lot of the music people would go over there after they'd 
close the office and didn't have particularly didn't want to go home, they'd go over there and sit and drink beer and listen to David. Boy, he was a great entertainer. Yeah. I mean, he's like Jerry Lee when he hits that piano. He could get it. Right. Then he'd get out there on the floor as big as he was and grab some woman and start slinging her around and singing. <laughs> and it just it was really entertaining. We'd give him a ten dollar bill and he'd go another hour. Right. And uh, so I was just thinking about him doing all that, and I thought, you know, that may be a good idea for a song. Hmm. So I started out, I play an old piano from nine till one, and I said, no, that needs more than that, a half past one. Huh. I'm just, I have to do this to make a living, and everybody else is having a good time. Hmm. Right. And then I thought, and then it wound up trying to make a living watching everybody else having fun. Hmm. I got it better. Yeah. And then that I thought, I'll have a pretty woman walk in and maybe a brawl start or something. And so I just kept writing like that and writing this. When I would get an idea like that, I'd write down anything that came in my mind. And and if, and if, if it had come in my mind that a polecat came in there and ran everybody out, I'd have wrote it down. <laughs> you can always mark it out. Right. And then I, if you get all that Everything that comes in your mind, just let your your mind roam. Right. My way of putting it is this. If you hobble a horse, it can't run. Hmm. And if you only put down the great stuff in writing songs, you won't ever get nothing written. Just put down everything and then mark out the bad stuff. And it's amazing what you've got left. Yeah, Yeah. editing. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, I wound up just writing this song, you know, after I got that song two-thirds or three-fourths written, I realized something. This is the only song I ever seen or heard in my life that ever rhymed, ever, ever letter in it rhymed. Yeah. <laughs> Just, uh, hello, T-R-O-U-B-L-E, what are you doing? A-L-O-N-E, hey, good, L-O-O-K-I-N-G, I spell T-R-O-U-B-L-E, ever. Yeah, I've yeah. had people ask me, how did you ever do that? And it wasn't intentional. Wow, that's amazing. It just happened. Yeah. And that thing just come off like the hit that it is. Yeah. 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 And uh, I went in and demo. Well, hello, T-R-O-U-B-L-E. What in the world are you doing all the A-L-O-N-E? Hey, hey, good L-O-O-K-I-N-E. I smell The minute you play that demo, you know it's a hit. Yeah, yeah. David was out on the road and about it, and I was gonna play it for him when he come in, and it was about him and for him. In the meantime, Lamar got a call from Elvis that he was cutting him, wanting him to come down there, and said, "See what Jerry's got." And he said, "Let me have that trouble song." And that evening, I got a call, and I don't remember. I talked to, uh, to Elvis or Vernon once, but anyway, Elvis said that is a rock standard Mm. that's my next single don't let nobody hear it (laughs) and when he got ready to put it out he said now you all have split every record i ever put out the dj split it Hmm. and whatever we put on the a side they play the other side trying to be heroes (laughs) i'll tell you what i want you to do i want you to mail all these when you mail out to the djs 
put a mono copy on one side and a stereo on the other, <laughs> and it, both of them is trouble, and then they can't split the record. That's their choices, yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And that's the only one, only record he ever put out in his life, double-faced wow. like that. Wow. That's Amazing. cool. Well, in the 1980s and 90s, there were a lot of different artists who began having hits with your songs that had already been hits for other artists earlier on. I think of uh, Tom Jones' version um, of It's Four in the Morning, which was a, a top 40 single. Um, there's a, a huge list of your songs that were sort of revived, probably most notably uh, Travis Tritt's version of T-R-O-U-B-L-E that was a, a big hit in 1992. Elvis put that out in 1975. Right. And then he played it in Vegas, and uh, Wayne Newton heard him do it on stage, and he run in and cut it. Of course, he don't sell a lot of records. He's a great performer. Yeah. yeah. But he cut it. Now, in the meantime, when Elvis cut it, there was a little boy down in Marietta, Georgia, named Travis Tritt that was playing these clubs. Yeah. And he fell in love with it, and he did his version of it, took one verse out, and did his version of it on stage for several years before and then he came to Nashville and artists are lazy. <laughs> if, if they know a song, they'll put in it an album rather than having to learn one. Yeah. Unless it's something they <laughs> sure. wrote, you know. And so he knew that song. He didn't have no trouble doing it. He didn't need no words to look at or nothing. So when he got after he cut the country club and a couple of good albums and got hot, he needed something to fill out an album. He was so busy. Right. He, he couldn't write 10 or 12 songs. He, he, he could write. He's a great writer. But uh, he could write seven or eight songs and did. Yeah. But then he needed two or three to fill in the album. And uh, so he thought of that. And he said, I know what I'll put in. I'll put T-R-O-U-B-L-E. So I love that song. Yeah. And he put it in there. And they told me that Travis Tritt had cut it. And, uh, you know, I didn't think a lot about it. And then mm. Harry Warner called me from BMI. I said, Jerry, you ain't going to believe how much money this is going to make you. Oh, it went double platinum. It went number one video, VH1. VH1, uh, yeah. Yeah. It went, it, uh, it, 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 today, it's still the number one line dancing song, and I don't even know if they're line dancing anymore. <laughs> but when yeah. they do, they play that they song. They play that one, wow. And yeah. it, uh, it went double platinum, then, and then the, the, he put out an album called The Best of Travis Tritt from the beginning, and, and kind of became his trademark. Yeah. And still is. It's kind of like uh, when... when uh, George Jones put it out at Goodyear for the Roses. Right. I started getting telegrams. Hmm. And it said, congratulations on the Elvis Costello record. Right. And I said, who the hell is Elvis <laughs> Costello? <laughs> is it an Elvis imitator? Or is it a... a Lou Costello you know, imitator. Is it Lou Costello's boy. <laughs> right. And I had no idea who it was. Yeah. But man, the first check we got in from, from the British Isles on performance with 62 grand. Wow. wow. You became Elvis Costello I fan. Said, I, said, I said, what is this guy? And they said, he's punk rock. And I said, maybe that's, maybe that's what I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> I've met him since that. He is something else. Yeah. yeah. Elvis Costello has put that song in seven different albums. Jeez. That's 
single. Man. Yeah. He loves it. You know, we talk about these songs kind of from the old days that have gotten a bit of a new life in recent years. But the last new song that charted for you happened back in 1980 when Jerry Lee Lewis had a top 40 hit with Honky Tonk stuff. Um, and that's basically because you retired from the business that year after less than 15 years as a professional songwriter, which is a relatively short period of time, especially given the amount of success you were having. Why did you decide to step away when you did? Well, to be honest with you, I owned a building down on Music Row, right beside Capitol. Hank yeah. Jr. walked in and said, play me a hit. I played him a couple songs, and he said, you write like my daddy. I'll do both of them. Wow. Huh. And everybody would come in and do this. And Tammy would come over there and listen to records. And she'd call over Columbia or have my secretary to call over Columbia and tell George she was going to be a little bit late. She was listening to songs. And and my this secretary that I just hired said, uh, George who? <laughs> and I fired, I fired her that evening. Wow. <laughs> and, but uh, Fern would come over there looking for songs. George would. Waylon Wood, everybody. They'd yeah. either come over there or call me to bring them a song. I never did go out pitching songs. Huh. I couldn't keep up with the demand. Yeah. Wow. But uh, then all of a sudden, Loretta started her own publishing company. And she would be in Hawaii or something, and she would want a hit song from me. She'd say, call Jerry and tell him I need a hit. Hmm. Well, I'd send it. I'd send a hit over there. And she had writers over there on salary. Now, if if she cut a song of mine that went number one, it would have been a disaster to her business. Mm. You follow me? Yeah. Right, right. So all of a sudden, Conway had a publishing company. Jim Ed Brown did. Fern did. Everybody started getting their own publishing companies. Yeah. And gradually started coming to me less and less. Hmm. And I started seeing the writing on the wall. These people are more interested in owning the copyright than selling records. Yeah, right. To write hit songs, it just, it's kind of like a man that's got five model homes up here on the hill and nobody's even looking at them. Right. Just because he's a great carpenter, he ain't going to build five more until them sales. Yeah, a lot of changes in the music business at that time, and of course a lot of changes since, and still changes going on today for sure but uh, no matter how much things change they'll always be great songs and we certainly are um, grateful for some of the great songs that you have left us with and it's just an honor to to speak with you and to have a chance to look back at some of your great catalog and we thank you for for taking the time to do this today hey it's my pleasure man just like talking about old times yeah man just telling stories yeah. it's fun for us it seems like seems like it was yesterday till i look at the counter or have a birthday <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right right i hear you good luck to you thanks for listening we'd love to stay connected with you so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com like us on facebook and follow us on twitter you can find us by searching for songcraft show and we look forward to getting together again with you next time for songcraft conversations with great songwriters 